welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasilla from Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Backshaw, GP and CCG Lead for Mental Health. And we're really excited today because we're going to be talking about end-of-life care and new developments in Somerset, and we're really pleased to welcome uh, Laura Hawke and Dr. Joe Lutyens. So, Laura, tell us, tell us a bit about yourself, and a very warm welcome to you. Thanks, Andrew. Hi, Peter. Um, yes, I'm um, an occupational therapist by trade and I've worked in uh, palliative and end of life care for a number of years. And I've been in this job quite recently, only since, well, started in the middle of the first wave of the pandemic last July um, and became kind of the, the lead on a very small team, but we're quite an ambitious team. And actually, we now look after end-of-life education for Somerset. So we are employed by Somerset Foundation Trust. We work with the NHS, but actually we work with the hospices, so all the local hospices, St. Margaret's, Dorothy House and Western Hospice Care as well. I also work with adult social care, so Somerset County Council, and we work with our colleagues in the primary care networks, all the GP practices too. So it's quite a nice role because it gives us a real nice overview of all the end-of-life educational content really out there in Somerset that can help staff and public alike, we hope, as well. Thank you so much, Laura. And Joe. Thank you. Um, so I'm Joe Lutchins. I'm a palliative care consultant Um based in the east of the county, working out in the community. I've been working in palliative care for about the last um, sort of 10, 15 years or so and been a consultant for about eight years down in Somerset. As part of um, working in palliative care, I've always had an interest in education. I actually spent a couple of years um, working out in Uganda a few years ago, um, developing a um, BSc in palliative care for different healthcare professionals. And that interest in education has carried on since I've um, returned to uh, sort of been working in the UK as a consultant. Um, we're very lucky as palliative care consultants in Somerset in that we all have education as part of our job roles, um, but we recognise the need to have sort of dedicated um, education team across the county who could develop um, the education um, because a lot of um, palliative care is delivered by sort of non-specialist palliative care and um, a big part of our role and those of law and the team is to support um, other people in um, developing those skills in um, providing end-of-life care and communication skills as well so it's great to have law and the team on board and to be working so closely with them. And I find palliative care one of the most satisfying parts of general practice. But to a lot of people, it might seem a rather depressing uh, area. Can I ask you both what took you into this part of uh, medicine? Well, for me, um, it's quite a personal story, really. My um, When I was trained to be an occupational therapist, my um, granddad was dying of prostate cancer and he had no tea. And it never really occurred to me that OTs, this is very naive of me back then, but OTs could work in the area of palliative and end-of-life care. I was a bit confused about what their role might be. Um, but she was a real, really passionate woman. She made an enormous difference to my granddad's quality of life. And I was basically inspired by her to find out more. And when I qualified, I went into physical health and did many rotations. Um, but always something brought me back to oncology, end-of-life care, palliative care. It was always something I enjoyed doing. And I realised actually... The sense of adding quality to the days left is a really special thing. And actually, our whole attitude, I think, towards death and dying in this country is slowly shifting from way from kind of you, you, you take to your bed and wait out your days where actually you can really, I've seen people have 
amazing quality of life, amazing experiences, um, really special moments, special times, and really a real strong sense of self right up until their last breaths, their last hours. And I think that's something that we need to really be always pushing forward as a service. It's something that we can we can really add, add, add a lot of value to to people's last kind of days of life, really. Yes, for me, it, it started um, straight from medical school. So um, I was um, the trained at King's in London and um, was um, spent a outpatient clinic with one of the palliative care consultants. And I think I was just really inspired by her and the way that she was with the patients and really focusing on the holistic care of patients. And I know that's a lot of what happens in general practice, but I think sometimes in acute medicine, moves away to that and there's a focus on the disease rather than necessarily what's important to the patient and their families um and it was the the kind of holistic aspects of that that I really enjoyed and one of the joys I guess of palliative care is that we can work across sectors so we have the inpatient beds in the hospice but we also work with our colleagues in the acute sector in hospital um but I love working out in the community with other practitioners in the community, but it's the privilege of seeing people in their own homes. And like Laura said, it's being able to just add quality. It's not a focus on quantity, but to the time when when it really matters most to people and the privilege of people really opening up sort of some of their biggest concerns and fears in their lives, but, but welcoming you into those sort of really challenging times in their lives. But it's such a privilege and, it's just focusing on making a difference when it really matters to everybody. But I think it's working across the sector um, and to everybody sort of involving everyone else. And it's a great bridge sometimes between the acute trust and the community as well and in, in joining that together. Yeah, I think that's so true, Joe. And I think actually it's, I would really echo that. There's a real MDT presence, really like kind of think about all the disciplines, all the organisations, all the teams coming together for the benefit of that person and their family. And I think there's so much creativity to working in end of life care. You have a lot. Um, you're not so defined by the, the structure. You can be you can take more chances. You can take more do positive risk taking with people. And I think certainly working both as an occupational therapist clinically and now working in education, um, some of the, the the passion from everyone, everyone really kind of wants the best for that person and certainly I'm not saying that doesn't happen in other areas of course it does but it does seem to draw a special type of person to work in this area who really really wants the best for that person in their the sort of last years months days of their life. Laura an interesting question um, what's what's the things that make the most difference that you've seen during, in the last few days or weeks of a person's life to help their care? I think it's all a lot of it comes down to communication and really good communication and listening as well as actually telling people information. So there's a, a, a stat, we ref, a statistic we refer to quite a lot in end of life care that actually normally when we're attentively listening to somebody, we only remember about 30% of what we're told. And that can, that's not like kind of any kind of, you know, distraction, you know, just attending to a TV program or a conversation, you'll only remember about 30% of that by literally a few days later. But when you're under a high state of stress or you're feeling quite emotive and you're distracted by your surroundings, it can be like as little as 10%. 
So actually, the communication we're trying to impart to people, the information we're trying to tell them, the could be information around medication or manual handling, or it could just be communicating about the disease progression. It's so important that we're really clear and really concise. And I think actually that makes the most difference to families in and that they're told the information. It's very empowering for them to be told the information that they need. So for a lot of people, it can be you know, the staff can feel actually that actually telling this person it's really upsetting and it's going to make them feel really overwhelmed and it might make them really anxious. But actually, by giving the people the information now and telling them the the facts that they need to know and, and giving them that ability to then weigh up decisions and make choices, it really does help kind of mitigate crisis further down the line for people in terms of their care. So I'm very passionate when we're teaching staff is to empower them to be honest and clear and concise and communicate as respectfully and as openly as possible with patients because and their families alike because I think actually that's the most important thing that makes the most difference to people being able to manage this quite um, it's quite an unsettling it's quite an unpredictable period of their life and, and can be quite upsetting ultimately but we can do that in partnership with them we can do give them an awful lot of support through clear communication. And on the subject of communication, a, a question patients often ask me is how much they should talk about the disease to the person who's dying. It, is that something that you've got a view on? Is there a, a best advice or does it depend on the individual? I think it does depend on the individual. When you say, Joe, I think it comes down to people's personalities, their kind of their relationships already in their families and how some families are very open. They'll talk about absolutely everything. And perhaps some families are very close and very private. Um, So I think it does come down to how you are as a family. There's no right. There's no wrong. I've worked with people over the years who've been very open and very pragmatic about death. And then I've worked with other people who they don't even want you to turn up outside with your, I don't know, perhaps your hospice car with a little bit of branding on it because it might tell the neighbours that something's going on. So some people are very discreet and very private and they don't want you to even use the D word, the death word. And it that's OK. I think actually people respond to this time in their life, this end stage of their life in very different ways. But ultimately, all we can do is is respect that and help them to get to a place where actually they're being well cared for, they're being well supported um, in whatever way, shape or form that looks like for them, really. I think a lot of it is is getting across to people that actually if they are able to talk about it, it enables them to have much more choice and to make decisions about what happens to them as they become more unwell. So I guess it's we talk a lot about kind of birth plans, but it's around the kind of end of life care plans and it's giving people the opportunity to have that. And often in families, there is a kind of protective effect. And I think people really fear if they start talking about kind of end of life and and people dying that that will happen but it's acknowledging that someone you know the diagnosis is there already and it's enabling people to talk about it and I think that's sort of one of the satisfying bits sometimes of my job is bringing families together and they'll often have conversations with you separately and they're both talking about the same things, but they're just really scared to talk about it together. And that's where we can, as healthcare professionals or or as anyone can kind of facilitate it and just enable people to talk about the scary stuff. And we talk about actually, this is difficult. It is upsetting. and You are going to get upset about it. And I think as professionals, we don't like upsetting people, but sometimes getting all that in a, out in the open, enabling people to talk about it, then means that people can 
can get on with life and can carry on living and have some quality to whatever length of life is left. And that's that's the big focus. And it just enables families and patients to do that. That's really helpful, Joe, to hear that, because for so many of us in society, death is a taboo. And you mentioned the word scary. We fear it. We, we're not too sure what might happen at death, either the mechanics of it or what happens after, but but we're just scared of the whole concept. And uh, sometimes in the NHS, it seems as though we're being asked to prevent death by by people. For for anybody, we're asked to save life at any cost. But as they say, uh, like uh, it's just death and taxes are the two inevitables in life. So so at an educational level, is society moving on from death being a taboo and something to be feared, or are we still stuck where we were years ago? I feel like there's pockets, there's pockets of opportunity, and I think actually there's some places where it is being talked about more. There are things like death cafes now that you can go along to, and people who are living with a life-limiting condition can go along with their friends, their loved ones, and talk quite openly about what the future looks like for them and what the days are going to mean. Um, there's also things like kind of coffin clubs where people can go and make and decorate their own coffin. So that's a real kind of in-your-face way of, of dealing with the reality, the practicalities of death. Um, I feel like COVID in general has put death a little bit more on the plate for everybody. Everyone has had to kind of, we talk about the death rates every day, we talk about mortality more, we talk about care at the end of life. So um, COVID has obviously, you know, it's it's brought it very much quite into sharp focus for a lot of us and, and encourage a lot of us to to confront our own mortality I suppose so I feel like we do talk about it more but whether we plan for it might be a different thing and I think that's where us as a palliative care team are quite passionate that actually we all know that future planning and what we call advanced care planning and uh, treatment escalation planning they're quite big wordy terms that basically what it means is thinking about the care and treatment you receive at the end of your life making sure that is right for you and appropriate and that your death is is dignified and in the place that you want to be those are all things that we're very passionate about as a team so death yes but the leading up to it and the actual thinking about the practicalities and the emotional aspect of that maybe perhaps that's not on, on the table quite so much I don't know what you think Joe. I think I I completely agree with that and I think what it's what we're trying to move away from is the sort of medicalization of death and and enabling people as a society to talk about death and and dying and and I think it's just I guess the pandemic has brought it much more into focus and we are having these daily sort of figures read out about the number of deaths and previously you know people don't talk about death and about how people die but there has been much more focus on that now and I think it's sort of a opportunity in a way to allow people to kind of talk about the bereavement side of it and and death and the sort of things they would want to happen or wouldn't want to happen I guess looking at a lot of kind of the, the footage and seeing people dying alone in hospitals I think it you know it's it's been very much people saying I you know don't want that and we don't ever want to go back to that again of people dying on their own and and it's just thinking that people should have more choice about it and enable us to talk about it but but it is it is really difficult as well, um, given the last sort of two years and, and everything is very raw as well at the moment. 
It's very interesting you say that. And if we put a historical context on it, uh, 200 years ago, we might be born into a family and there might be 10 siblings born, but only four or five actually reach adulthood. And uh, and the shocking statistic in the 1800s that uh, for women in childbirth, one in 10 would die as a result of childbirth. And so, so death was a very present um, uh, phenomenon three, four, five generations ago. And many of us now have have hardly ever seen a death um, in our families maybe our grandparents but but it's it's become a, a rarity and therefore unexpected and and therefore as you say um, um, taboo and, and rather scary um, and as you say the pandemic the news about it has brought the immediacy of of it it coming around and and uh, our hearts go out to anybody who has lost anyone as a result of the pandemic or or developed a, a severe illness um, but it's it, it, it has come around almost full circle to confront us and to perhaps deal with it at a at a more adult mature level because I've got two questions really one is what range of conditions are we talking about well there's I mean there's a lot of chronic illnesses that get worse over time so I mean we might not think about it in a very kind of literal sense but even when you think about conditions like um, COPD and heart failure and dementia these are all life-limiting conditions. That's chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. I'm glad you'll come straight in mentioning those Joe because we tend to think of of cancer as the sort of the the, the, uh, illness that produces death. We do we do and we I think Cancer gets that that spotlight shone on it quite brightly, and we do very much associate cancer with, um, you know, people do obviously do get better from cancer, but we, it is one of those things that we think about in terms of end of life care. But there are lots of other illnesses that have got a much slower sort of deterioration down towards death, but actually still are very much part of the part of care spectrum. And then we've got also obviously all the deteriorating neurological conditions, so things like motor neuron disease and Parkinson's and all those things. Actually, when people are, are struggling with quite major disability and need an awful lot of support towards the end of their lives as well. You've talked about the the things that have happened under COVID, and it, it has made us think more about death. But it's also interfered with the rituals around death, and I wonder how important you feel those are in helping either the the person who is coming to the end of their life or the, the people around them uh, come, come to terms with impending death? I think massively. I think the fact that people haven't been able to connect the way that they normally would in those last precious days and hours of life are quite traumatic. And I think people will experience and need a lot more bereavement support to help them through that that very upsetting episode because and the the impact of touch, the ability to actually hold somebody's hand and, and hold them in your arms and be with them, be present with them as a loved one. And to be denied that, those last opportunities and to do it through a screen feels so uh, cold and artificial. And I think we will see in the future, I think there will be there will be a long lasting impact for those those poor families that have been bereaved in this in this very sort of, um, difficult way. Um, so we we've there's things that people have put in place to try and uh, overcome some of the obstacles so thinking about um objects that can be mirrored and touched so for example at st margaret's hospice they did this this lovely uh project which which involved um hearts little soft hearts and one person would hold the heart at the hospice and the other person would hold the heart at home and they would 
try to connect them in that way but it's 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 small little things actually and actually at the end of the day all you want is kind of to take your loved one in your arms and give them a, a big hug and that was denied to many people so I think it's it's been hugely impactful to people's emotional mental health and it probably will continue to, use, to continue to do so. So that that brings us on to the fact that a lot of people are affected with bereavement and loss. And are there phases that we go through with with loss, that uh, emotional states that we'll go through with bereavement that we should all know about? So some would say about the the the, the kind of stages of, of grief that we're kind of familiar in kind of almost pop culture now, kind of thinking about kind of sadness, anger, denial, bargaining, and then finally acceptance. But I think we all recognise actually that's a fairly strange, slightly linear, put grief in a box kind of concept. So I think we've moved away from that kind of slightly old-fashioned theory, and we realise now that people will experience elements of all those emotions at any point, and perhaps some of them at no point. Um, not everyone gets to a point of acceptance around grief, and some people are always very angry, and some people are always very sad, and actually people can get quite quite stuck in those stages as well. So certainly I think grief is a very uniquely felt um, experience for each and every person, really. Um, we always try to be positive in this podcast. You've no, no, I, it's not a criticism. No, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just wanting to, as we come to the end, uh, sort of help people. I wonder if you can advise them where they should turn to, um, what what resources are available. And, and also, you've already given us some positive things, haven't you? Because you've said about things like advanced care planning, which gives people control at a time of their life when they may be feeling that they have very little control over their life. So that's a positive. You mentioned hospices. And I was asked a while ago what I thought the, the most positive development in my time as a GP was. And, and my answer was the introduction of hospices. So those are, are both positives already. But I wonder if you could give our listeners any tips on, on how they can deal with bereavements uh, and resources that they can turn to. Absolutely. And you're right, it is about empowerment at the end of the day. We can't ignore death, as you say, it does come to us all, but there's an awful lot we can do to actually make the process a little a little smoother, a little kinder. Um, what we're hoping to bring out, hopefully in, in February in 2021, will be a new website. Um, so it's going to be called Somerset End of Life Care um, and Bereavement Support. And basically that website will hold a whole host of resources. What we've try to do which has been a little bit of a challenge but an interesting one is to connect across organizations to bring lots of content and material together that we think is going to be really useful to the public to staff too that work in end-of-life and palliative care but the public have got their own section on the website there is one section which will be all around kind of support for you as a person living with a life-limiting illness or perhaps you're supporting somebody who's living with that there'll also be support for people as they come towards the um, end stage of their illness around thinking about kind of the dying process and what that looks like and then there'll be another section which will be very much for friends and families of the loved one which will be around bereavement support. So there'll be lots and lots of content on there, which hopefully will be really useful to people to help them navigate this really difficult time in their lives. I think just, um, I guess, going back to the this sort of discussion about bereavement and the, the communication around it again, I think it's just, again, it's kind of normalising it as well. And I think there's always that tendency when thinking of colleagues or friends or family or someone who's been bereaved and 
again, we don't want to upset people. So we tend to not ask them how they are or mention the person who's died. And it's, again, just kind of allowing people to to talk about it and to, you know, it might make us feel uncomfortable to talk about the fact that someone's died, but just acknowledging it and saying how sorry we are that someone that someone has died and and they might get upset about it but it's you know it's giving people you know showing them there are resources there but sometimes it is just just a hug or just a discussion about it or just a cup of tea with a friend to say actually this has happened I you know you really miss that person and and enabling them to talk about that person remember who they were and not just kind of forget about it really and it's like the kind of death and dying talks. It helps to talk about it. It's difficult and it can be upsetting, but actually it can be really positive to remember that person and those those really good memories. So thinking about bereavement support partnership in Somerset, there is, if you or your family member would like support from this service in Somerset, please call 0800 3047 412. And that's Monday to Saturday, at nine to five. So that's already available. Uh, as part of our resources in Somerset. But it, it's it's great to see the whole issue of death and of loss and of passing being acknowledged because certainly when I trained as a, as a junior doctor, uh, I was just at the end of the generation where people were not even told that they had cancer. Oh, doctor, don't, don't tell him he's got cancer. Um, they might, you know, that, that'll frighten him. And so people would actually die without knowing what was going on. And um, you can argue that was a very, very paternalistic approach um, from the medical profession. And I think it, it probably was. And uh, um, it's, it's how it was. And thank goodness we've moved a long way forward from that to the point where, as Peter, you said, we've got hospices. Both of you work with the hospice movement, with, with the end of life care, uh, Joe and Laura. And uh, You've got great expertise and, and society recognises the need. So what have we got in store? So Laura? if people in Somerset want to access the new website, um, it will be www.somerset.eolcare.uk. Um, we really hope that it will be a really useful resource to everyone who lives in Somerset because we've tried to make the resource really localised so it's not just all the national content which is on there. But actually, there's lots of stuff about up and coming kind of education events they might want to look at, or there may be kind of clubs, there may be little kind of coffee mornings. We really hope it'll, it will over time become a hub of information for people. And if they need to know anything and everything about end of life care and bereavement support, then it's their one stop shop place to go. The other resource, just to mention that we have, there's a project going on at the moment with the Marie Curie volunteers. Um, who are supporting um, people in the community to have discussions around advanced care planning. So if there are people who've, who've thought about kind of what they would and wouldn't want to happen at the end of life and would like to write, have something more formal written down about an end of life care plan, then there are um, Marie Curie volunteers who actually um, have had gone through special training um, that are able to work with people to put their end of life care plans together and have something in writing and, and just to think about things that they would and wouldn't want to happen. That's great to hear. Just a sort of a, a, an off the cuff question about end of life planning and advanced care planning. When should I'm 63. When should I write my end of life plan and my advanced care planning? Should I wait a while? Um, should I have done it at 50? Should I do it at 60? Where, do I wait till I've got a diagnosis? 
I think you do it whenever you want. I'm 35 and I've written mine. Then you can update it. That's the beauty of it. So it's it's. I always think if you're writing a will and you've got responsibilities in terms of, I don't know, mortgage, children, whatever it might be, and you are thinking about the financial um, impact of your death, then you probably need to think about your role in your death as well and actually thinking about the care and support you're going to need towards the end of your life um so actually if you i think if you're writing a will then why not do an advanced care plan at the same time the beauty of it is that you can change it so i'm um, certainly when you're writing in your 30s 40s 50s and 60s you as you come towards the end of your life and you start really thinking about perhaps you've got a condition and it actually make, might make you feel quite differently about the treatment and support you might want um then that's okay change it as you go we all evolve and change throughout our lifetime and i think that our care planning should reflect that my 14 year old granddaughter has already uh, told us uh, what she wants done at her funeral <laughs> there you go she's obviously needs to work in palliative care she's got the right mentality for it <laughs> It's about it's about kind of communicating things that you do want to happen, things that you don't want to happen. And and yeah, there's so many times where we have discussions with with families who just have never had that conversation with someone and then are then trying to kind of decide when someone's very unwell if if they want to kind of carry on with this treatment or that treatment. And if you if you've never discussed it as a family or there's nothing written down, then it's really difficult to know what someone's priorities are. So it's just having it written down and then and then put away and forgotten about absolutely my colleague harriet always says what she say plan it and park it so you don't need to think about it afterwards just it doesn't take long it doesn't take long to go through the questions and they're quite open straightforward questions there's nothing complicated there's nothing too medicalized um but you can you can easily get the form by just googling um advanced care planning it's um on Somerset and it's on Google you can find that form quite easily um, but you can also get them through kind of GP practices you know if you're kind of already linked in with your health and social care professionals say I'd like to do my advanced care plan please it does get to tend to be something that's put on the back burner all the time but it doesn't take long actually you can sit down with your family your loved one with a cup of tea and get it done in half an hour lovely I love that plan it and park it and talk about it with your family we need to normalize this because it's part of life uh, death is there end of life care is there advanced care planning is is so important and thank you so much uh, Joe and Laura for coming and joining us today you're welcome thank you thank you you've been listening to the Somerset emotional well-being podcast hosted by Dr Andrew Tresida and Dr Peter Bagshaw the show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.